Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The 16th Congressional District includes parts of Lancaster, Chester, and Berks counties. With the retirement of longtime Republican Congressman Joe Pitts this year, the seat is now open, one of the few across the country, and as a result, it is getting national attention. As part of WITF's election 2016 coverage, today we're joined by Libertarian candidate Sean Patrick House. Mr. House, welcome to the program. Honored to be here, Scott. Thank you. Let's start off by talking a little bit about yourself because you don't have a lot of uh, experience politically as far as running for uh, elected office. Now, you are the chairman of the Pennsylvania Libertarian uh, Party. But tell us a, a little bit about yourself. Well, I've been a member of the Libertarian Party since 1992. I was the state or the county chair in Lancaster County in 93, 94. We have run candidates for county commissioner district justice, um, mayor, Brandon Bello Santiago. I have a bachelor of science degree in computer information systems. I went to school at Octorair High School, was born in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. First 11 years of my life, I was my father was in the military, so we traveled to a lot of places, Fort Meade, Maryland, Fort Lewis, Washington, Germany, and such. So I grew up in a very conservative, authoritarian type of family. And I'm married. I have a 10-year-old daughter, Natalie, that goes to the Columbia School District. So I obviously have a vested interest in education. And um, I'm, I'm looking to make change, and I'm looking to serve. And I've been involved with the Hemp Industries Association for about 20 years. So that's renewable agriculture. Uh, three months before 911, I helped sponsor Mercedes-Benz that did 13,000 miles on hemp biodiesel fuel. So I, I'm um, looking to kind of change things, get rid of this left-right paradigm shift of politics that we're put into with Democrats and Republicans. And I think we need a, a third voice or a fourth voice to help the public discourse. Well, let's talk about that. Um, there may be people who are not familiar with the Libertarian Party. What is a Libertarian? Uh, a Libertarian believes that government's role is to protect the rights of the individuals to let individuals do as they please as long as they're not harming others. So it's a minimal amount of government and it's a maximum amount of freedom. If we're looking at the opposite of a libertarian, that would be an authoritarian. Uh, so libertarian believes in liberty, freedom, constitution, the law, rule of law, and everyone follows the same law. There's no two-tier law system as we have. So there's a lot of different things that we question what is the proper role of government. If we look at a big bill, basically we could take this big bill that might be 40, 50, 100 pages and say, by what right and by whose authority is this bill legal or correct? You know, I'm curious. You said that uh, your father was in the military and that you moved around a lot. Uh, authoritative uh, kind of uh, father or, uh, you know, household, but yet you're a libertarian. Yeah, he, he volunteered for Vietnam. He was one of the first male nurses. He flew medevac. And correct, I just grew up rooting for Richard Nixon, rooting for um, um, Gerald Ford, you know, versus, uh, Ford in every garage versus Peanuts with Jimmy Carter. And I was working out of Philadelphia in about 19, oh, I'm, I'm not sure when it was, 1991. And I was listening to Irv Homer from WWDB. I've met Irv Homer several times. Yeah, a great inspiration. And I heard this woman speaking, Nancy Lord. She was the vice presidential candidate of the Libertarian Party. And I'm like, wow, I'm a Libertarian. 
So I joined April 20th of 1992, joined the party, and I've been involved since. And it's really about the person, not necessarily the party, because even in 2012, I was very active in the Ron Paul campaign, and in 2008, we were the same way with Ron Paul, because it was the man and the mission. And and even in the sense of my congressional campaign, I would, I would be emulating, to a degree, uh, Congressman Paul's work within Congress. And, and that's what I'm hoping to do, is to serve and protect. Even though Ron Paul had to run as a Republican, uh, I think in 2008, he was running as a Libertarian, right? I think 2008, he was running as a Republican. Was he? Okay, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't remember. Anyway, a question I like to ask candidates, but especially this year, since this district has not been um, in play for a long time. I mean, there have been candidates who have run against uh, Joe Pitts in the past, but it's been a heavy, heavily Republican district. Not so much now with the way the, the thing is, is drawn up. In Lancaster County, maybe, but uh, maybe not as much in Chester County and in Berks County. Why did you decide to run this time? Uh, people have asked me to run in the past, but I never really accomplished anything. After 20 years being involved in the hemp industry, we are going to be growing industrial hemp. But it's kind of like a Pennsylvania state store mentality. And I had been encouraged by the Hemp Industries Association to contact Representative Pitts in the past because he was holding stuff up in committee regarding uh, agricultural hemp. And I had been tired of that because I'm not a paid lobbyist. I have uh, to try to make a living. But when I went reached out, uh, normally when I had reached out before, it was like, thank you for your support of marijuana legalization, a typical form letter. And it was very frustrating. But then I found out he wasn't running and what I had accomplished. And I was like, wow, this would be a good opportunity. This is a good segue because we are going to grow hemp, but I think we need a federal voice in a lot of venues, not only the hemp cannabis issue, but in other aspects, especially the war. And I, I want to be that person to be able to speak up for the constituents, the ones in Coatesville, the ones in Reading, Lancaster, Kennett, Avondale, Avongrove, Willow Grove, or Willow, um, the, the, all the areas in Willow that. Willow Grove, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, the uh, 16th Congressional District kind of looks like Italy flipped backwards. It's very odd. And it's not as cumbersome as I hear the the, six, the 15th Congressional District, but there's a lot of area to cover. Hmm. So uh, Let's talk about that. Uh, you know, many times, I'm, and I'm sure you're well aware of this, uh, people conf confuse the agricultural uh, industry of hemp, of raising hemp, growing hemp, with the legalization of marijuana, hemp and marijuana. But at the same time, as a libertarian, and this is one of the national, on the national platform for the Libertarian Party, you support the legalization of marijuana and other drugs. You want to end the war on drugs, correct? Correct. And I, I'd like to even uh, get rid of that slang term of marijuana. Uh, it's cannabis in all aspects. I mean, Genesis 1:29, God made every seed-bearing plant to be meat to man. We have a wonderful opportunity with renewable agriculture versus single source uh, sources of energy, such as coal and fracking, where you have a monopoly to a degree controlling this. We need to empower our farmers. This is the best way to keep our farmland. Popular Mechanics in 1937 called hemp the new billion dollar crop. And that's when our currency was backed by gold and silver, not this Federal Reserve fiat currency that we have now. So when I've been at the Pennsylvania Farm Show for the last 10 years, we have hemp concrete, we have hemp composites, we have, have, have hemp wood, we have hemp textiles. 
I've covered the Conestoga wagon in Conestoga, Pennsylvania, twice with hemp canvas. The Dutch word for hemp, hemp, the Hamptons in New York. We live in Hempfield Township, uh, Lancaster County. But my concern with the medical cannabis bill is that we have a Pennsylvania state store mentality. So really, we've been talking about this for years and years and years, and you get poo-pooed away, but all of a sudden there's money. They see what they're doing in Colorado. They see what they're doing in other states. Now the legislatures want to get on board, but I advocate that individuals have the absolute right to self-cultivate cannabis right in their backyard, just like they would tomatoes. This way we get rid of the Pennsylvania state store mentality. We increase the patient-caregiver relationship. We get greed out of the picture and that's the biggest issue when we have politics which equals control which is greed who's going to benefit and we need to empower the individuals to do so but agricultural hemp it's about 150 to 300 plants per meter it's going to look like bamboo and it grows 8 to 18 feet tall in 90 days with little to no pesticides which is great for organic farming if we're growing medicinal cannabis it's a different variety of seed as I, I joke with folks, just because you have seed doesn't mean you have weed. But medical cannabis is two plants per meter, and it looks more like a Christmas tree. Mm. And the THC, the resin, is there to protect the seed from the sun. Basically, the UV protection from the fiber is what you get from the plant itself. So mm. well, well, a lot of benefits. Maybe we'll talk, have you on uh, you know, talking about uh, hemp cultivation. But getting sure. back to the campaign and the sure, issue, sure. the war on drugs. Uh, right now, uh, Pennsylvania and really uh, probably every state in the country is going through what has been described as a crisis, right. heroin and opioid. Th- getting rid of or stop fighting the war on drugs, does that include legalizing drugs like heroin, drugs that are now classified as illegal? Yeah, the, the libertarians run statesmen. We're going to tell you like it is. And one of the things we need to do is end that war on drugs. That was based on racism. You know, it's really hypocritical when the biggest, the, the, the abuse of drugs is prescription drugs. We need compassion and we need help for folks that have issues. I'm not a dummy. I'm not going to do heroin. I'm not going to do meth. But when we look at the root cause, look where we're getting the opium or the heroin from. This is coming from Afghanistan, and we're in Afghanistan for 15 years as a military adventure there, and 97% of the heroin comes from Afghanistan, which is crazy. But we do need to end the war on drugs. It was based on racism. This will help our police focus on predators and not people of color on the assumption that they're running drugs. So we can take the money away from drug cartels by legalizing it. And if folks have issues or abuse something, they can get help versus losing their liberty, destroying families. You know, obviously folks have issues if they're doing drugs. I mean, people are despondent nowadays. I'm, I have hope. I'm an American optimist. I know a lot of people don't. And normally if you're doing drugs, you've given up hope. But we, we're compassionate and we want to help people. You know, the, the the argument, of course, against that is that uh, if these drugs that are now illegal and can kill people, if they're legal, you would have many more people abusing those drugs that would end up overdosing, killing themselves. I, I would refute that. I, I really think that's wrong. I think if 1% of our population has an issue, whether it's overeating, overdrinking, oversmoking, whatever it is, those people will still get help. We need to bring it above board. 
that if there is issues, they can use the court system. Again, they can get help. But we need to end the war on drugs. We can look at what alcohol prohibition did. And again, we have hypocrisy. You have legal drugs and illegal drugs. Why do we even have that? We need to lower the cost of everything and not make it so it's, it's um, so people want to go try it because you're telling me not to do something. I mean, alcohol's legal. I don't drink it. Cigarettes are, are legal. I don't smoke them. You know, and I, I have faith in a lot of people. I mean, you have, again, 1% of the population where there's an issue, but drugs have created more harm. We have more abuse. The DEA has been implicit in this importing of drugs. I mean, even our government has been in, in, entailed in this thing with bringing in drugs, if you do your research. I want to talk more about that because DEA is one of those uh, organizations, one of those agencies that uh, you would like to see go away. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is 16th Congressional District Candidate Libertarian Sean Patrick House. We're talking to or with the uh, political candidates throughout central Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania during the month of October leading up to the November 11th. Excuse me. I sound like uh, (laughs) someone who was famously given the wrong date. Uh, November 8th uh, election. Uh, WITF's election 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg Law Office of Saul Ewing LLP. You mentioned the Drug Enforcement Agency just before our break. Uh, You also advocate uh, shutting down NSA, National Security, TSA, and ending mass surveillance. Why? Well, because they're focused on free, law-abiding citizens. Uh, We have this thing with the the wars over, you know, we're we're losing our liberties tremendously with our our foreign involvements, the empire. I mean, uh, everything that they wanted to do to us, we're doing to ourselves. But they're, they're not accountable. If I'm in Congress, we're going to find out what's going on, and I'm going to report that to the 16th Congressional District. But we do need to end the Drug Enforcement Agency. It's a corrupt agency. It's done nothing but, but been a drain on the economy. We need to reduce these um, alphabet agencies that serve no constitutional purpose and return that to the taxpayer dollar, taxpayers themselves. We have a $20 trillion debt, and we need to deal with that. Mm-hmm. A lot of the issues that you're talking about seem intertwined. Uh, if you legalized uh, what are now illegal drugs, when it sounds like you, there would be no need for a DEA. Uh, if the United States was not involved in military actions overseas, maybe there wouldn't be as much need for uh, surveillance or a TSA. But the fact is that the United States is threatened by terrorists today, that we have uh, people who do want to come into this country and kill Americans or do it overseas. And we have to go to the root of that. Why is that happening? We are bombing countries like crazy. This was predetermined before to go into the Mideast and take out Libya, take out Syria, and all these other countries. This is foreign entanglements at its worst that uh, George Washington warned us in his farewell address. This needs to change. We need diplomacy versus bombs. We are supplying both sides of a conflict. We are droning. Um, I want to see the politicians that are clamoring for war to send their kids to war first. But the TSA serves no useful useful purpose. Uh, they've had more arrest within their own agency versus catching any type of terrorist. If there's an issue with that, with the, the air, airport should have their own security. 
When you say there's no need for it, uh, yeah, granted, there have been some publicized cases of TSA problems, but there also have been a lot of times where there have been people trying to take a weapon on board a, a, an airplane or have tried to, you know, bombs, whatever, tried to hurt uh, Americans, try to blow up planes. I mean, we saw what happened with 9-11. Right. And we never questioned the third building. We never con- questioned the controlled demolition of 9-11. Uh, there's a lot of questions. We have a redacted 28-page report with the Saudi Arabias. We use that as an excuse to go in and bomb Iran, which is ridiculous. You know, we have 22 soldiers a day, veterans, killing themselves. Is that a good symbol or good good gauge on how we are doing overseas? Well, let me just follow up on what you, you just said about 9-11. Are you saying that you think that the, the U.S. government was complicit in that? I didn't say it, but they stood down, and we had three buildings that pancaked down quickly. I questioned the whole scenario of what's going on. I can I question a lot of false flag scenarios. I mean, this is the thing to be an American is to question. We want to know. We want to know what's going on. That you know, when you have a report because it's national security that they're not, they're what are they hiding? That that they had to redact stuff with the Saudi Arabians. I mean. These, these, a majority of those folks that apparently went into the, the or on a plane were Saudi and Arabians, and we use that as an excuse to bomb Iran or Iraq. I mean, again, I question the motives. They, they stood down our military. I mean, I want them to release all the, the film footage around the Pentagon. Why, what, why don't what do they, you mean they stood down our military? They didn't. When you have planes coming in, why didn't we scramble our jets? They did. Okay, well, then I, I wasn't aware of that. But again, there's a lot of evidence that hasn't been released. Mm-hmm. Even around the Pentagon, why don't you release all those surveillance tapes so we can exactly see the planes going in? I just question what's going on. There have been numerous times throughout our history that we've had false flag attacks to be able to provoke war. President Eisenhower warned us about the military-industrial complex in 1954. I don't think we really took that to heart. You know, there are millions, hundreds of millions of Americans who see 9-11 as um, probably a day that we all will remember, one of the, 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 the turning points in the history of this country. And many people saw it on television and saw what happened. And, you know, people listening to this who are hearing you question what they saw and that the government is complicit in it may say that disqualifies you as a candidate. I didn't say the government was complicit, but I just don't think all the facts were there. There were three buildings that collapsed. We only talk about the two buildings. I mean, again, and we're talking about bombing folks in Syria, and then we're talking about the refugee issue with Syrians coming in. But if we weren't bombing them, they wouldn't have to worry about refugees coming in. We have so many things that we need to take care of with our own citizens, right our own wrongs within our own country, let alone trying to correct everyone else. Now, we have presidential debates. We're keeping Gary Johnson and William Weld out of the debates who've been on the ballot in all 50 states. How does that help with the political discourse when all we get to hear is Hillary and, and, and Trump going back and forth? We're not dealing with the issues. Mm-hmm. And I will say for that, that is... W- for the, us in the media, one of the most difficult decisions is which candidates to include. And a lot of times there's criteria based on polls, amount of money raised, and, and, and that kind of thing. Because, you know, it's almost a, a chicken or the egg kind of thing. Is if third-party candidates 
would get more attention, well, maybe they would do better in the polls and be able to participate in these things. But then there are people who in the media look at it and say, well, you know, the poll numbers are so low, they have so little support that we know it's either going to be a Democrat or Republican who is elected here. How do you see that? I think the easiest thing to do is if you're on the ballot on all 50 states, and I know exactly what it took for Pennsylvania to get on the ballot, uh, the Libertarian Party cost them $62,000 in numerous time and effort to get on the ballot. So if you're on the ballot, just like I was in the debates in Lancaster County, I got on the ballot. If I'm on the ballot in all 50 states, I think that warrants the American public looking at it. The other thing is I question the polls. Who's doing the polls? Why aren't they counting millennials? How are they being selective? Are they counting them one, two, and three, or are they just doing the second tier as they've done with, with Johnson? It, it's, you know, I again, I question the polls. I question the people that are, you know, it's it's hard to get on the ballot. It's not an easy thing to get on the ballot. If you get on the ballot in all 50 states, that should be the number one thing to include you as a serious candidate. And you have two governor candidates. These aren't just some average Joe that is running for president. These folks both serve two terms, New Mexico and, and Massachusetts. William Weld is very famous. They should have been included in the debates and still should on October 19th, but they're not. I want to get on to a couple other issues since we only have about five minutes left. You had already mentioned downsizing the U.S. military and uh, using diplomacy. What about gun control? Gun control, and this is one area where libertarians, when you, you talk about uh, you know, conser- being conservative and you know, different from Democrats and Republicans, what about gun control? We do not question that absolute right of the individuals to self-protect uh, themselves. Guns are, are part, of that, part of that ability for weak people to be able to defend themselves. Obviously, it's a last, last choice. There are rules and regulations, but we're not into creating more. The libertarians aren't getting any money from the NRA, the GOA, but we're very firm advocates in the absolute right of the individual to self-defend themselves, and that's part of national defense. But as a, you know, again, looking at the, the country realistically, we have a lot of gun violence in this country. The mass shootings get a lot of, get a lot of attention, uh, and there seems to be legislation introduced. It, you know, there's a question whether anything ever happens afterwards, but you know, we have millions, hundreds of millions of guns in the country. Um, that absolute right you're talking about, doesn't there have to be some kind of regulation? There are, are there. And I think, again, going back to what we originally started with, the war on drugs has not helped. So you see, you think that uh, cracking down laws uh, that would limit guns would have the same impact as the war on drugs? Pretty much. I mean, law-abiding citizens should not be the den- denied the right. If you're crazy, if there, there's already rules and restrictions to purchase purchase weapons. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, more people get killed with their hands and with, with knives in that aspect, which is a sad thing. The folks that are trying to create more laws have bodyguards that have guns. A couple other uh, things. In your, your website, you uh, do go down extensively where you stand on a list of issues, so I'm referring to, to your uh, website. Uh, you talk about pensions, public pensions, replaced privileged government pensions with Social Security. No one deserves a taxpayer-funded pension. Uh-huh. So you would say that 
you know, let's just get rid of uh, public pensions. I, I Now, I, what I think here, Scott, is we need to start fresh. And the people that are on the pension system, obviously, we need to shore that up. We have an 18, I don't know if it's a billion-dollar pension deficit right in Pennsylvania right at this moment. But I, if I get elected Congress, I'm not going to take a pension. And I think we need to tell other people looking for off to, to become public servants, don't count yourself a pension. Get yourself paid pay yourself more. Teachers need to be paid more so they can put into private pensions. But I don't believe anyone deserves a taxpayer-funded pension. We're almost out of time. Mr. House, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Always leave uh, a message. Let candidates leave a message for voters. What would yours be? I would ask if folks want to come out and help our campaign, go to House to Congress 2016. My number is 1-800-USE-HEMP. We could use your help. We want to make things change for 2016. We want to get rid of this oligarchy, this duopoly, and uh, check out the Libertarian Party at LPPA.org. Sean Patrick House, 16th District uh, Congressional Candidate for the Libertarian Party. Thank you very much for being with us today. Absolutely. A pleasure, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. All right. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Saturday Night Live has uh, long poked fun at and used politicians at the butt of their jokes. The Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump matchup this year has provided lots of material for the show, and apparently last Saturday's sketch infuriated Trump. Do you feel you're modeling appropriate and positive behavior for today's youth? No. Next. (laughs) So you don't care about the kids? Anderson, I love the kids, okay? I love them so much I marry them. I've been helping kids my whole life. In 1992, I helped a kid named Kevin McAllister find a hotel lobby. (laughs) You might remember the documentary Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Now, after the show aired, Trump tweeted, Watch Saturday Night Live hit job on me. Time to retire this boring and unfunny show. Alec Baldwin portrayal stinks media rigging election. Now, Clinton was the target during this sketch as well. Your question comes from Patrice Brock. Hello. My question is, do you feel that you're modeling appropriate and positive behavior for today's youth? Hi, Patrice. Uh, (laughs) Let me uh, start by walking over to you just as I practiced. (laughs) Right, left, right, left, right, left, plant, speak. Uh, Now, uh, Patrice, you're a teacher? No. Uh, You have kids? No. You like kids? No. You've seen kids? Yeah. Okay, great. We're bonding already. Oh, my friend Patrice. (laughs) Political satire has been around since before there was the United States. For hundreds of years, it was in the form of political cartoons. To discuss that history today is Dr. Amelia Rouser, who is professor of art history, chair of the Art and Art History Department at Franklin and Marshall College. She's also author of the book, Caricature Unmasked. Dr. Rouser, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also joining us is Dr. Allison Dagnus, professor of political science at Chippensburg University and author of the book, A Conservative Walks Into a Bar. Dr. Dagnus, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks. We are taking phone calls during uh, this portion of the program. Maybe you have a joke to tell, a political joke. 
joke. Uh, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. Or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Or you can go to WITS Facebook page. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call if you have a question or a comment. All right. Um, you know, I have described Saturday Night Live. I have to admit, now, I haven't, for, I haven't watched Saturday Night Live for years. But during this 2016 campaign, it has become almost must-see TV for political junkies because they have done such a great job of satiring Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in particular. Uh, does, is this anything different than what we've done throughout our history, Dr. Rouser? Well, yes and no. Um, the, the, if you think about what caricature is, is developed to do, what you're doing with a caricature is you're deforming a person's exterior, some distinctive aspect of their, the way they look, you know, their nose, their ears, their hands. And in doing so, you're making a more like likeness. You're deforming them in such a way that they actually seem to be more like themselves than, than in, in real life. And that deformation not only seems more like them visually, but it also tells us something about who they are inside. A really good caricature gives away some character traits deep inside. And so caricature functions in this way because we really, really believe that true people are more themselves inside and in private than they are on the surface. We tend to distrust surfaces. And so what caricature does is deform that surface kind of like an x-ray machine to help us kind of sh show what's really going on inside that person. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, the, the physical features sometimes of, uh, of candidates are overstated, and mm -hmm. that's been done throughout history. Um, even on TV with a show like SNL, uh, I mean, they, Alec Baldwin playing uh, Donald Trump has the scowl on his on his face. He you know walked behind Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. snuck up on her like uh, uh, you know w w there's a lot was talked about it, and you know and she was portrayed as being kind of phony and mm -hmm. having this tr trouble meeting uh, reaching out to, to voters. So, Dr. Dagnus, how do you see it? Well, Amelia's 100% right, and, and when you're looking at Saturday Night Live, that kind of parody takes an existing understanding of who a candidate is and amplifies it, so it's just the same thing as, as caricature, only in acting form. And SNL does politics better, I think, than they do most things. I, and, I agree with that, yeah. And so if you look yeah. back, you know, to Tina Fey in 2008, doing Sarah Palin, um, all of the, the Bill Clinton you know, stuff that Daryl Hammond did. You know, these, this is taking an existing understanding of who a political candidate is and amplifying it for humorous effect. And this can have a devastating impact if it doubles down on this pre-existing understanding of who these candidates already are. And so, as Amelia says, you know, if it amplifies kind of the, the darker and nastier parts of a person, that's going to be really problematic. And that's what we have seen so far in Alec Baldwin's Donald Trump. It, it, it amplifies and highlights this part of him that really is nasty and distasteful. You know, something you said early on about the Saturday Night Live, there are more people who, when they do an imitation, now it's been years that they're doing it on a regular basis, of uh, the first President Bush, President H.W. Bush, they do the Dana Carvey imitation. That's <laughs> true. Like, not going to happen. You know, you know they, they, I can't do it. But uh, they do the Dana Carvey imitation more than they, they do 
the real President Bush, which is, you know, that's become such a part of our, our popular culture. You know, it's easy to dismiss a cartoon or satire as something as being uh, silly and frivolous, but it's not. I mean, and let's face it, Dr. Dagnus, last time you were on the show a few years ago, we talked about your book, Conservative Walks Into a Bar. But what it has done is, and there's a whole generation, seems, of voters out there who are getting a lot of information from these shows. So what mm-hmm. role, uh, you know, Amelia, what role do does political satire play? Oh, it's a, a very important role. I mean, satire, it, is, it works with irony. And what irony does is it allows you to say the unsayable. You can say the opposite of what you mean and then with other sort of cues of of tone of voice or other sorts of, you know, visual cues you're you're cluing the audience in that you don't actually mean what you say, you mean the opposite. And so irony allows for this space of commentary that's not available other ways. Um, and it also is a way of showing the gap between our ideals and our reality. Um, if you look back to the caricatures in the American Revolution, the symbol of liberty the liberty cap was deployed over and over in an ironic way to show the gap between, oh, we think we're people of liberty, but look at the oppression that we're actually suffering. And that it was humorous, but that humorous gap actually told an important story to, to viewers about what we should aspire to and, and the gap between who we actually are and who we think we are. What a, you know, you're both in a classroom all the time and working with a lot of young people. Dr. Dagnus, are, and is it true that many young people are getting their and forming their political opinions based on what they see from from humor shows like The Daily Show, uh, you know, and all the uh, late night shows now, you know, uh, Trump and Clinton have provided so much fodder for for their uh, monologues. You know, the studies have shown that actually that's not true. Really? And, okay. Yeah. And what, but what I found is that it's a very important piece of a large information set that millennial voters are getting. And so I like to say that you can't get a joke unless you get the joke. And so a joke can't land unless you understand it, which means if you haven't been following politics, a political joke isn't going to make any sense at all. So people really are not informed about a presidential race or an issue or anything like that by comedy. What it can do is it can add another layer of commentary and another layer of opinion on top of a pre-existing understanding. And so in that way, it can help inform. It can help uh, also divert, you know, because that's really what political comedy is supposed to do. It's supposed to tell the truth, but in an easier way, like in a, in a more oblique way, you know, in a way that's more fun. Good example was just that SNL was skit from uh, last Saturday night. If you had not seen the debate or seen highlights of that right. debate, mm-hmm. you probably had no idea what was going on right. there mm-hmm. with what they were trying to make fun of. All right, let's take a phone call from Brandon in Likens. Brandon, you're on the air. Hi, how you guys doing? We're going well. Um, I, I wanted to, uh, uh, basically, your your guests on the show there, I, I, I do agree with the, um, you know, the point about Saturday Night Live kind of amplifying the situation like a character. However, uh, you know, I've, I've watched Saturday Night Live growing up, um, not so much recently, but I will say that watching that skit, um, it was it was very clear to me that they were kind of treading very lightly, in my opinion, with Hillary, and and any kind of chance they had to put Trump down, they did. They they just made him look as bad as they could, um, and kind of made Hillary look better. But they still had to 
kind of put little stabs in here and there with her. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and I, you like, know, it, it, it frustrates me to, to, to see that with the media being very influential. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Brandon, there are a lot of people who agree with you, a lot of Trump supporters who agree with you. Thank you very much for your call. Actually, and I've seen even some non-Trump supporters who have said that uh, it was pretty much one-sided, that particular skit, but that they have taken um, you know, more shots at Trump than at Clinton. What about that? Um, there is a theory out there called confirmation bias that says that you filter a lot of what you see through your own political lens. And so if you are predisposed to believing that the media are biased against Hillary Clinton, that can help shape the way you view a skit. Now, that said, um, certainly political satire does lean left. Its writers lean left and its performers also lean left. So there probably is something to that. But what really, I think, needs to be explored a little bit more is um, how much of an influence you think this is going to have on the voting public. And so if this is going to be the defining thing, then, you know, then that is then that's problematic. I, I mean, I certainly think that the writers at Saturday Night Live just have more to go with with Donald Trump than they do with Hillary Clinton. She is a far bigger character than she is. He says things that are magnified, uh, you know, three, four, five times bigger than than what she does. And, and she has very much on purpose tried to sort of tone it down a little bit this election to give him that room to be bigger and so they have a little bit more material to work with so i think there's a bunch of things going on all at the same time amelia has that always been the case that uh, like cart those who were cartoonists uh, did they always lean left i mean throughout history no actually if you go back to um kind of the early the first heyday of political satire when political satire was first published there had been private um, caricaturing as a kind of social game but when you first start to see it as a as a as a media um, event um, in the 1790s there were many conservative satires in fact um, you know caricaturing the leading uh, liberal politician as being Charles James Fox as being licentious and you know radical and he was going to chop off people's heads because he was a Jacobin at heart and that sort of a thing so the both sides real used funny yeah, yeah, real funny. <laughs> maybe, maybe the humor wasn't so intense, actually, now that I think of it. But but the caricaturing was certainly there. So, yeah, so both sides used it. And, in fact, the, the king had um, had a secret line item in the budget to pay satirists to do, um, to do his work. You know, I think back on uh, some of the political cartoons that I've seen throughout history. Abraham Lincoln was just targeted... Unbelievably, in uh, you know, before the election and then after he became president, I mean, people calling him a baboon and you know how dumb and back backwoods he was. But what about George Washington? I mean, we go back to the 1700s. <laughs> Don't see too many George Washington no, jokes. No, in fact, I mean, he's a pretty unique character in American history. And that this was he was he was of course anti-party, and he didn't want um, he didn't believe in factionalism. And this was before the idea that fact that parties could be good for democracy. He thought they were bad for democracy, and he he was pretty much universally revered. And um, the main Im images that survive are these you know reverential portraits or the many many images of mourning that that happened after his death. Mm. Let's take another phone call from uh, Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, Jim. Uh, I am a huge fan of political satire, and uh, I, I personally think that uh, political satire is a sign of a healthy society. 
for those people who think that political satire is something new, I would point them in the direction of uh, Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal in 1729, where he uh, wrote an article that basically said the, uh, the solution to having too many children in the world was to serve them for dinner. Uh, and, and let me make a couple comments about uh, about uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that uh, that he uh, his, he and his supporters needed to lighten up a little bit. Uh, if you want a, an example of satire that may very well have affected the election, take a look at Chevy Chase on Saturday Night Live back in '76 and his satire of Gerald Ford falling down yeah. all the time and, and so forth. I that was a very close election. I think that the Chevy Chase portrayal may have affected the election in '76. I, you know, uh, I, yeah, I think I think Trump and his supporters just have to lighten up a little bit, and it's part of the electoral process. Hey, Jim, thank you very much for your call. You know, I would not disagree with that because didn't Ford like fall one time right. or, or slip one time? He was an all-American athlete. Yeah, yeah. He was a very agile guy. Yeah, he was an all-American <laughs> center at the University of Michigan yeah. uh, playing football. But didn't he like stumble one time on a tarmac mm-hmm. at an airport and Saturday Night Live picked up on it and then from then on it was mm-hmm. Chevy Chase falling all over the place right. and I would not doubt that he's right in I a close an, election. Another example was the, the sighing of Gore during the the debate right. in 2000 that I think he sighed once or twice and it just got picked up and mm-hmm. amplified I think also in a in a SNL skit um, and and took over that portrayal you know and, and if I could just add something here I think one of the more remarkable things about this election is that Donald Trump really does not appear to have much of a sense of humor about himself oh, and no. and that is going no. to very much affect the way that jokes land with him or don't, as we saw this past weekend, and the way that his followers are going to take cues from him about what is okay and what is not okay. Because I know that in 2008, when uh, Saturday Night Live was poking a lot of fun at how old John McCain was, he went on the show and showed that he had a sense of humor, that he made fun of how old he was. It took all the wind out of those jokes, and they stopped making them after mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So Trump is really not, he's not a guy who sort of cracks wise. And, and there's mm-hmm. been a bunch of stuff that's been written recently about this, most notably about the Friars uh, Club roast yes. that they did of him and how they ran jokes by him. And, and he has handwritten notes changing the jokes to make it sort of less of a hit on him. And so I think that that's going to affect the kind of humor that not only is levied against him, but that also is received by his by his supporters. Crack wise is not something I hear very often. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all hour. <laughs> but, but you're right. I mean, one of the things that Trump did after uh, the, the SNL skit from last week is he said, you know, this unfunny show needs to be canceled. Right. Now, what's <laughs> ironic about that is he hosted the show. Right, he did. <laughs> just, just a few months ago. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there were some people, some columnists. Now, maybe this is going a little bit too far. But maybe not, uh, because it does, you know, fit into a pattern. But, you know, there were some people, some columnists, pundits out there who said that this is dangerous, that uh, Trump is saying that, you know, here's a show that made fun of him, so now he wants it canceled. It's a a, a First Amendment uh, issue. Right. Now, if he is serious about that because it did make fun of him, well, yeah, there may be some problems. Trump has some problems. Well, he there. hasn't only said it about SNL. That's oh, the yeah, trouble. That's so the, yeah. he's, 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 right, he's threatened yeah. other reporters and 
media outlets who have criticized him as well. And so, um, yeah, it's part of a pattern there. You know, and I also, you're right, and I just want to add in that, that he is running to be the most powerful person in the world. I mean, he's. this is not his idea that Saturday Night Live isn't funny. I think a lot of people can say Saturday Night Live's not funny and maybe it should be canceled. But at, from a position of power as, you know, the leader of the free world, I think mm-hmm. that that's a very, very scary idea. Mm-hmm. When is political satire not appropriate? I mean, what's not appropriate to make fun of or mm-hmm. to make light of? Yeah, that's a, it's a question that has come up a few times in our recent history, you know, after 9-11 mm-hmm. or, um, you know, in, in, the, in the discussion of the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacres and so forth. You know, what are the limits of, of what we can do and what we can make fun of and what is, what is humorous? Um, and what you saw in looking, especially like after 9-11, you know, there was this, there was, this, uh, there, there was a period when irony seemed to be dead. You know, mm-hmm. you just could not go there anymore. And um, everything seemed so deadly earnest. But that um, eventually gives way to this. Um, there, there are always new targets, whatever the situation is, that need to need need light shed on them, you know, from the perspective of the satirist. Um, and, and that happened after 9-11 as well. And uh, the old expression is tragedy plus time equals comedy. So I think that there's an element of this that's time. You have to give something sad some time to breathe and then... There can be humor. And and sometimes there can only be humor around an event. There mm-hmm. can't be humor directly focused at it. But um, I think that time element is very important. Mm. You know, one of the reasons that uh, Donald Trump has uh, many of the supporters he does is that they will say that he's not politically correct. And what they mean by that is that he has said some things that uh, uh, many people are thinking, but they, they, they just don't say out loud. Along those lines, there are people that say that we're offended too easy as a society today, that uh, very often that, you know, we we take things way too seriously or we're way too quick to be offended. Does that make political humor bad? I mean, does it make it that it's, it's harder to get or people to tell jokes for satire to be out there because people are so easily offended? It's funny that the people who are concerned about political correctness, they say that it's the the people opposite them who are more easily offended, but actually they seem to be more easily offended to me. I mean, they are the ones who um, look at Trump's, you know, disparaging of the SNL um, over his, his tweet recently. They're the ones who can't seem to take a joke in that literal sense. Or when when people talk about political correctness, I think a lot of what they're talking about there is that they feel uncomfortable having to acknowledge other people's discomfort in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they say, well, you're being politically correct, you're making me think about my speech. Well, maybe they should think about their speech, not in the sense of suppressing it, but in, in the sense of thinking about its effects on others. Okay, um, but, and so but, that can contribute to political discourse, not suppress it. But in the course of humor, mm-hmm. I mean, when people are trying to be Funny. I mean, I can't. I can't imagine a Don Rickles kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for those who don't know Don Rickles, you're too young. But Don, <laughs> Don Rickles, the whole thing is. I mean, he'd ad lib. He'd go on the Tonight Show mm-hmm. and say, "Listen, the Jewish guy is doing this. The black guy is doing this." Today, that would be taboo. It just doesn't seem like it would happen. I yeah, it's not that funny. But it was then. What was different? <laughs> the difference was uh, the audience. Yeah, so you have a majority uh, a majority audience, perhaps, who thinks that's funnier than they do today. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a phone call from uh, DJ in Hershey. DJ, you're on the air. Okay. Um, one of my things is the speed that uh, stuff gets around the world nowadays uh, with uh, texting and uh, emails and everything else. 
and then it gets blown out of proportion and multiplies very, very fast. Uh, before, it used to just be the political cartoon in the Sunday paper that would, you know, raise an eyebrow. And it would only raise an eyebrow a little bit. Uh, I forget which president said something like he didn't like broccoli. George uh, Herbert Walker Bush. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was the first Bush, yeah. Yeah. And then the broccoli council uh, jumped on his case on, oh, you know, you, you can't say that. Well, people can have choices. Um, um, I didn't marry every girl I dated, so uh, somewhere I didn't like something. <laughs> well, there's a good analogy. Hey, DJ, you, you don't have a good phone line. Thank you very much for your for your call. Technology, the point he's bringing up about technology, has that changed political satire? Absolutely. Uh, we are now able to get clips of political humor spread around really, really quickly, and that has helped the n- numerous platforms available have helped to really grow the number of political satirists that are out there and the, the amount of political humor that's there. But it also has meant that there's a bit of a niche out there, too. And so if you want a specific perspective, uh, you can find it. And that can be a good thing, and it can also be a bad thing. But we are getting a lot more of it because of the technological developments. In your book, uh, A Conservative Walks Into a Bar, and I remember asking you this question the last time, you said that people who are very, and I hate to use the word serious because that is part of uh, whether you have a sense of humor or not, but those who are very devout, devout, devout I should say, devout uh liberals, devout conservatives, Mm -hmm. that they're just not funny. (laughs) Well, it's hard to feel two things at the same time. So if you're feeling really, really passionately about politics, it's hard to find the humor in that. And, uh, And I think that that goes on both sides of the ideological spectrum. And maybe that explains why, you know, and those who laugh that the majority of people in this country are probably moderate and not those two political extremes. Although in this country right now, it maybe, maybe it shows to... why we need we need political satire right. now more than ever. <laughs> we need to laugh a little bit. Right. And it, it skewers our own pretensions and our own beliefs as well as those of that we oppose. That's true. You know, and we were talking about uh, what's offensive. And I know that uh, you were quoted, Amelia, that uh, there were cartoonists who had a real problem mm-hmm. depicting President Obama mm-hmm. when he first became got on the public stage because they didn't want you, you said very early on yeah. that you know you look at the extremes but that didn't want to portray him and, and look racist doing it right there's this long tradition of, of racial um, racially charged satire um, and uh, and caricaturists when they first started to sort of hone in on what how to caricature Barack Obama um, some of them you know, had a lot of trouble not playing up those old, um, those old connections. We only have about 20 seconds left. I want to thank both of you for, for being with us today. I was, if I had time, I'd ask questions. I, you know, how will cartoonists portray Hillary Clinton? Uh, I mean, they've already done it, but I mean, if she is elected president for the next four mm-hmm. years, it, whether that is offensive to many women out mm-hmm. there. But I want to thank you both for being with us today. Thanks Thank for you. having us. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Allison Dagnus is professor of uh, political science at Shippensburg University, author of the book A Conservative Walks Into a Bar. Dr. Amelia Rouser, professor of art history at Franklin Marshall College. She also has authored a book, Caricature Unmasked. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to be talking about congressional redistricting.